want to talk about the Bible today a little bit. I want to talk about this passage. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. How many people are familiar with this passage? How many people um, find this passage triggering? It's a triggering passage. Why is it a triggering passage? Because we all have our own interpretations of Scripture, and there's some people... uh, and when I say some people, I'm thinking mainly white Western men. But anyway, some people who, um, who think that their interpretation of Scripture is the only way, and so you start to talk about other interpretations, and they go, ah, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scriptures. And what they do is they go right to the rebuking and correcting part. That's what they do. And so, yeah, I think this passage has been used against a lot of us. Uh, this passage has been used in history to hurt a lot of people. It's been weaponized this passage. In fact, we weaponize our Bible often, right? Uh, we, we use it to divide. We use it to hurt others. We use it to keep others separate from ourselves. And so we've used this passage to subjugate women. We've used this passage to enforce slavery. We've used this passage uh, to, to keep that white Western culture alive and well and in power rather than having other cultures get find equity. We've used this passage for those ways and for those reasons. And so when I hear this passage, it is a triggering passage to me. Right Now why is it, or I'm sorry, not why, um, but how has it been used against us? Uh, I, like to bring up this, uh, I like to bring up this story. I've told it before. I'm going to tell it again because it's so absurd. Uh, but there was this one time I, I used to write for the Huff Post, and I'm writing for the Huff Post, and I wrote this article called Jesus Was a Refugee. And so I talked about how Jesus was indeed a refugee, and I talked about how our scriptures call on us to welcome refugees, support refugees. And I'm not kidding you, within five minutes I got an email from another fellow pastor who was like, you're ruining this country. And I was like, how? Uh, And he was like, you're taking scripture out of context. And I was like, what? And then he wrote me this passage. He said, I am the gate. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. And he goes, Jesus stands at the gate and watches the gate. And I was like, I can't even begin to tell you how wrong you are right now. Like, like you've just completely, t- this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And, and then he wrote back, scripture's used and God breathed and used for correcting and rebuking and bringing righteousness and you need to be righteous. At which point I was like, I can't argue with this guy anymore. This theobrogen is too much. So, yeah. So, I uh, I stopped. But here's the deal. Even though this passage is the way it is, I still believe in this passage, actually. I still believe that Scripture is God-inspired, and I still believe it is good for teaching, and I believe it is good for correcting, in some cases rebuking. I do believe it brings righteousness. I believe those things. And we're in the midst of our Growing Together series, and in our Growing Together series, I've talked to us, and I said, hey, listen, I believe our church is so important, and the work that we're doing is so important that I think we're a part of a movement that's going to bring the good news of Christianity into the next 500 years. Like, I really believe this. Like, truly believe it. And if you believe it too, we're working to raise $35,000. And if you believe our church can do this, give to it. I had a friend who goes to our church say, yeah, if uh, we're a church of what, 400 people? And they said, if everybody gives uh, $35 a month, uh, or I'm sorry, not everybody, if 100 people give $35 a month, we'll hit our goal. Like, that's pretty impressive. That's what we want to do because we believe our church is that important. We believe the work we're doing is that important. Well, how? Two weeks ago, if you were here, I talked about how we're LGBTQIA affirming. I talked about why that matters. Mira preached last week, and she talked about our God is not an angry God. 
Our God is a God who wants to restore us, right? Our God is a God of love. Uh, we're going to talk uh, uh, about uh, why we believe that Christianity is not white and Western, why we believe in anti-racism, and why we believe in equity. And then today we're going to talk about the good news of Scripture, why Scripture matters, and why we still think reading it is a big deal and actually brings us wisdom. Okay, so let's talk about that today. Right up front, I'm going to tell you that I have been getting a lot of info from a book that I'm reading right now. Uh, it's called How the Bible Really Works. And it's a really interesting book. When I, when I get the time to put a, blo uh, a blog up, I'll put a blog up with all the resources I've been using this series. And right off the bat, the author of that book, Pete N., says this. When it comes to the Bible, expecting it to be an instructional manual intended by God to give us unwavering, cement-hard certainty about our faith, we're creating problems for ourselves. The Bible wasn't designed to meet that expectation. It is misguided to think that the Bible is designed primarily to provide clear answers. Here's the first problem. The first problem is that we look at our Bible and we think of our Bible as a constitution. We think of it as a rule book. I think at, it, at its worst, there are parts of the Bible we don't understand as, at all. And so we're reading it and it feels like an Apple Terms of Agreement or something. Where we're like, I'm not going to read this anymore, but I agree with it. Like, you know, I'm done with it. Like, that's sort of how we feel. Like, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, and, and so we, we see it in this way. And by seeing it in this way, what we're doing is we are, um, and I say this all the time, we are making God really small. That's what we're doing. We're making God really, really small. In fact, what I would say is we're making God into a helicopter parent. That's what I would say. There's some helicopter parents in this room. <laughs> Raise your hand. I think times I'm a helicopter parent. You know, the, the worst is like you're at the playground and the helicopter parents are like this. It's like let your child just slide down the slide. You don't have to be under the slide like that. But the real worst with the helicopter parents, and I hope nobody in this room does it, and if you do do it, I'm not judging you. <laughs> but... Um, uh, oh, the parents who run alongside their kids when their kids are on the scooter. Like, it's like either let your kid ride the scooter or get your own scooter. But don't <laughs> ride alongside the kids. That bothers me. I'm bothered by that helicopter parent. And then we see God, right? Uh, we, um, we see God as a helicopter, a helicopter parent. Um, you know, God is the one that's like sitting there like this or, or running alongside us. And it's not in a good way. It's in a way where God is saying, like, oh, you're going to get into trouble, you're going to get into trouble, you're going to get into trouble. And that's how we read Scripture, with this idea that God is alongside us, waiting, just waiting for us to misinterpret Scripture, waiting for us to get it wrong, waiting for us to get in trouble, right? And as soon as we read it wrong or get it wrong, God, oh, oh, I told you, I don't love you as much as I used to, right? That's kind of a feeling we get anyway. We feel duped by the whole thing. Now, here's the deal. God is not a helicopter parent, not in the least. And here's the other deal. Our scripture is not a rule book. It's not instructions. It's not a guide, okay? It is not a constitution. Our rule, our, our rule book, our Bible is a library. And I've said this over and over. Our Bible is a library. So we wouldn't walk into a library, which I think some of us still do good for you. We wouldn't walk into a library and get a book of poetry from T.S. Eliot and, and hope that that poetry would give us instructions on how to live. We wouldn't do that, right? We wouldn't walk in and we wouldn't pick up a novel and we wouldn't be like, well, this novel's not giving me a manual on how to do anything. Like, we wouldn't do that, right? But yet we do it every time we pick up the Bible. Every single time we pick up the Bible, we're like, well, this thing doesn't quite make sense. Of course it doesn't make sense. You're reading a letter from 3,000 years ago. 
Of course it doesn't make sense. You're reading poetry from 8,000 years ago. Of course it doesn't make sense. You know, you're, you're reading an account or someone's story of how God looked and felt to them at that time. That is what you're reading. And yet all the time we expect it to translate no problem to America in the 21st century. And when it doesn't, we're like, well, this thing's no good. Right? That doesn't make sense. What we have in our hands is a library, and it's a library that is filled with wisdom. How do we know that it's a library, not a rule book? Well, if it was a rule book or an instruction manual or a constitution, it would be a really bad one. And the reason it would be a really bad one is because there's contradictions aplenty in our Bible, right? So, ten plagues. How many people know about the ten plagues? Okay. The ten plagues were a very intentional way of showing the people at that time that the Hebrew God was greater than the gods of Egypt. Now, here's the thing you might not know. Did you know that in the time of Exodus, when this, when this was written, did you know that it was common practice, everybody absolutely believed it, that there were more than one God? Polytheism was real. Did you know that? That's a real thing. And so, of course, your God is going to be greater than the Egyptian gods. And so each one of the plagues is used to show that, the, that our God, the, the Hebrew God, is greater than the Egyptian gods. And yet, a few hundred years later, we get this passage in Isaiah 44. It says, I am the first and the last. Beside me, there is no God. It changes. That's a contradiction. There's tons of contradictions. Old Testament talks about slavery constantly. By the time we get to Philemon, we have a, a, a letter about, uh, you know, God doesn't really want slavery and you're going to free this person, right? That's a contradiction. In our scriptures, we have people using power and using the government to get ahead, right? And then by the time we get to Jesus, Jesus is like, no, we're not using power, we're not using the government to get ahead. It's a contradiction. The Bible's filled with violence, and yet when we get to the Jesus again, we have Jesus who's nonviolent. The Bible's filled with contradiction. If this was an instruction manual, we would put nothing together. Right? This is one of these things that we cannot see it that way. We need to see it with new eyes, as the library it is. And so here's the thing, and here's what uh, I, I love, and here's what I, I think is good news for us. This is it. The Bible is not this thing that's just set at one time in one place. The Bible is alive, and it's constantly at work, and it's constantly moving. And here's the other thing I'm going to say, and this gets people a little nervous sometimes, the Bible doesn't tell us what God is like. The Bible does not tell us what God is like. The Bible is showing us how people imagined and reimagined and imagined and reimagined again how God might have been in their lives, in their context, and in their culture. That is what the Bible is. Now, that doesn't mean it's not God-breathed. It is God-breathed and God-inspired. It is useful. It just is a group of people imagining in their context and their culture at that time. The Holy Spirit's working in them. And here's the thing, right? I say this all the time. Like, they didn't know they were going to be in the Bible, right? I say that constantly. It's not like people were like, all right, everybody, 2 Chronicles 4, and go. No, it wasn't like that. And this is why I love it, and this is why I love our church, and this is why I believe this is good news for our church. If that's what was happening then, then it's still happening for us now. It means that we still get the wisdom, we still get to bring value, we still get to bring affirmation. We are a part of writing scripture. We are a part of imagining and reimagining God over and over and over again in our own context, right? In our own context to bring wisdom, right? To bring value to this place, to bring affirmation to this place. We are continuing part of scripture. The spirit works within us. And if God inspired people 10,000 years ago and 2,000 years ago, then our God is big enough to inspire us today. That is the bottom line. 
And I look forward to the future, you know, however many years from now, a thousand years from now, when there's been an addendum to this whole thing, and we're going to sit around never knowing we were a part of it, right? Yet we are. Yet we are. Here's another quote. Rather than providing us with information to be downloaded, the Bible holds out for us an invitation to join an ancient, well-traveled, and sacred quest to know God, the world we live in, and our place in it. So I believe that that's what we get to do as a church. I believe that's good news. I believe it's going to usher us in to the next 500 years of Christianity. We're not going to see Scripture anymore as a set-in-stone rule book that doesn't quite make sense. We're going to see it as wisdom, value, and affirmation as we move forward. And I want to read to you one more quote because I'm getting so much good stuff from here. It's the difference between rule books and wisdom. It says, rule books answer, a rule book answers deliver certitude and finality, but wisdom of the Bible embraces mystery. Rulebook answers are distant and passive, but wisdom of the Bible is intimate and learned through experience. Rulebook answers are immediate, but wisdom of the Bible takes trials and error over time. Rulebook answers provide comfort and stability, but wisdom asks us to risk letting go of what is familiar for God's surprises. Rulebook answers are designed to end the journey, but wisdom of the Bible shapes, up, shapes us so we journey with courage and peace. Rulebook answers are limited to specific moments, but wisdom works in all times and places. And rule book answers keep us small, but wisdom gives us the space we need to grow. So as a church, how do we enact this wisdom when we're reading scriptures? How do we interact with our Bible? I want to give us a couple uh, examples, and these are, I'm cherry-picking these examples. There's plenty of them, though. Um, but let's talk about ones that are popular in today's time. So let's talk about the fact that in Corinthians, and then again in Timothy, it says that women should stay silent. Let's talk about the fact that it says that women shouldn't preach because Adam came before Eve, which is always a really tricky one, interesting one, right? So instead of reading it as flats, this is an instructional manual, we go, huh, well, even though I know that women have been oppressed for years because of this scripture, and even though I know that, that this doesn't affirm and lift up people the way that I think God would probably intend, I'm still going to believe it because you know, rule book. No, instead we go, all right, where's the wisdom in this? Where was the wisdom in the context and culture when people were saying this? In the context and culture, we have to imagine that people were going, well, there's a reason that maybe someone shouldn't speak. Well, I don't know what that reason was. It was culturally. culturally. So now I'm thinking, well, if I'm bringing wisdom to this, are there situations now where people probably shouldn't be preaching, shouldn't be speaking? The answer is absolutely yes. The Theobrogen who emailed me, that dude shouldn't be preaching. <laughs> like, bottom line. Right? And so we say it that way, but then we go, but how does this bring value? How do we bring value? Well, we read through Scripture, the themes, right? There's themes throughout. One of the themes is there's a God who's progressive and generous and just and moves us towards affirmation. Well, is it possible there are people I'm not affirming? Is it possible there are people I'm not valuing? Well, maybe it's time for me to do that. That's the wisdom piece. That's the value piece. Let's take another easy cherry-pick one. Romans 1.26, Paul says, uh, men gave in to their temptation and they lie with other men. Okay, once again, we can read this and go, well, it says it right there. This is a flat instructional rule book. I guess it's over. And let's, let's uh, marginalize an entire community of people over it and tell them they're not loved. Good idea? If we read it with wisdom and we read it with value, we go, well, culturally speaking, we know that Paul's in Greece, and we know that in Greece there were men who were holding power over younger men and sometimes boys in sexual ways, and yeah, that doesn't work. But if we're gathering wisdom, well, we say, but is a same-sex loving relationship, is that something that brings value, that does bring affirmation? A hundred percent yes. So why would we continue to break down people because this thing is an instructional manual and God is saying, find wisdom in it. 
And here's the deal, and this is the deal. We will get it wrong. We're going to interpret this the wrong way. We're going to mess it up. In fact, I've tossed my Bible against the wall a couple times in frustration. That's going to happen too. And our God is not a helicopter parent. Our God is not sitting there going, oh, I love you less because you messed it up. Our God sees us like a child and goes, yeah, you're going to fall off the slide. You might get your scooter a little bit into the street. I get it. doesn't mean I love you less. It doesn't mean I don't think you're going to figure it out. It just means you're growing. It just means you're learning. And that's why I believe that scripture is God-inspired. And that's why I believe it's useful for teaching, and that's why I believe it's useful for correcting and rebuking, and that's why I believe it brings our church and others like us to righteousness. I believe it. So don't be afraid. Have some courage. Interact with your scriptures. Not as the crazy rule book that we've all been taught it was, but a scripture that is still alive and still living. It asks us, each and every one of us in this room, to imagine and reimagine and imagine again what God looks like in your lives and in my lives, not only for 10,000 years ago or 2,000 years ago, but for right now and for all time. And can I get an amen? Amen. Thank you. Let's pray. God, thank you for this book. Thank you for this library. Thank you for this, this thing we get to interact with and, and wrestle with. Thank you for the fact that we get to read it in, in different cultures and contexts throughout history. And thankful that the main theme throughout, God, is your incredible, never-ending love for us. And so we thank you for that love as we continue to imagine you throughout the ages. We pray this in your name. Amen.